It's Friday, January 11th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. With the partial government shutdown getting ready to stretch into its fourth week, federal workers are starting to feel the pain. It's payday, and many aren't getting paid. The conversation also continues to revolve around whether the president would declare a national emergency to get the border wall built. Haley Britsky, reporter for Axios, joins us for all the ways people are starting to feel the pain of the shutdown. Next, the trial of Joaquin El Chapo Guzman has gone on for about two months in Brooklyn federal court and is expected to last several more weeks. What we are learning from the trial, however, is how he and his Sinaloa cartel smuggled cocaine, marijuana, and other drugs into the U.S. using cars, trains, planes, submarines, and underground tunnels. My producer Miranda joins us for some trial highlights, including the IT guy who helped bring down El Chapo. Finally, hotel fees are starting to get out of hand. Hotels have gotten very creative in making you pay mandatory fees with few options for getting out of them. They are often called resort fees, destination fees, housekeeping fees, and much more. Scott McCartney, travel editor for the Wall Street Journal, joins us to talk about why you need to read the fine print about extra fees when booking a hotel. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The wall or the steel barrier, they can have any name they want, but we have to have it, and it's going to happen. When I say Mexico's going to pay for the wall, that's what I said. Mexico's going to pay. I didn't say they're going to write me a check for $20 billion or $10 billion. No one's going to write a check. Joining us now is Haley Britsky, reporter for Axios. We're continuing to talk about this partial government shutdown. It's stretching into the fourth week now. The president visited the border. He made the his address to the nation earlier in the week, saying it's a crisis of the heart and the soul, saying we really need to figure this all out. But he's holding firm. He wants $5.7 billion to build the wall. Democrats are also holding firm. They do not want to give him that money. A lot of the news right now is centering around whether the president will declare a national emergency to build the border wall. What do we know about that? Well, Axis has reported is that right now is still on the table as one of the most viable options that the president is looking at. And it's something that really worries a lot of conservatives, especially in the legal community, who see this as a dangerous precedent to set for if there is a Democratic president in the future who decides to use a national emergency to get something done on their agenda. And so the president said before he left for Texas that if there isn't a deal made, it would be very surprising to him if he did not declare a national emergency. So we know that that's something the president is really thinking strongly about, and it's something that is still very much on the table, despite him not bringing it up in his national address earlier this week. But it's something, again, that, that Republicans, I know Marco Rubio said, I believe, earlier this week that, you know, a Democrat could use a national emergency to tackle climate change. And they're worried about, you know, the things that would come with that. And so it's something that is really making a lot of conservatives uneasy. There's all sorts of stuff that goes into declaring the national emergency. He has to declare which powers exactly he's using to declare it. He has to explain what the emergency is. Reports are saying that a lot of his advisors are pushing for the emergency, already knowing that it's going to get stopped in court. They're saying it's just this mechanism to be able to say, we're going to get the wall built, it can be stopped in court, but at least we can reopen the government after. So it's just interesting how they're trying to play this. I 
think the way the thinking is, is he's going to declare the emergency. Courts will intervene and stay the order. Then Congress can reopen the government while the case is being litigated. At least he did something about it. I think what we have to remember when we think about this, especially with the national emergency, is that at the core of this, the wall was always one of the president's most prominent promises to the American people and to the people that he voted for him. It's something that he's been saying from day one he wanted to get done. And so we have Congress not backing down. So the president is looking at what are his options so that he isn't seen as backing down. And if that means declaring a national emergency and being stopped in court and, and, you know, having that process unfold before him, then that's something he may be willing to do simply as a way to point to something tangible to say, I tried to get this promise accomplished right. for my voters. I tried to get this done um, as I've been talking about it for so long. So it really is a strong possibility that this could happen down the road. Reports are also saying that the Pentagon is already preparing some options to build barriers on the southern border. If the emergency declaration goes through there, it would be up to the Army Corps of engineers to design the barriers, and then they'll contract with others to build them. But then the money comes out of the Pentagon fund there. And I think I've read that they have about $13 billion of money. So they only need the $5.7 billion, but that takes away from money that, uh, you know, if they need to build emergency barracks for soldiers or something like that. So this switching around of the money would also impact other services. The other thing too, is uh, people are already starting to sue the government. The FBI agents association sent a petition of the White House saying you need to end this thing now because it could threaten national security. What do we know about that? The FBI is saying that they have agents now who are working without funding and they're trying to continue on operations without federal funding. And so they're saying that this is bigger than just an argument over border security. This is now affecting the FBI's operations around the country and around the world. And, and, and they are begging the White House and Congress to come to a conclusion on this. We're nearing it to be the longest shutdown in history. And so we're not sure what the implications of this could be if it goes longer than that. We've never seen that before. And so we're seeing these federal agencies coming out and saying, we cannot sit here with no money any longer. Today is the day when federal employees get paid again. A lot of them are seeing zeros on there. The other furloughed workers, I mean, they're just not haven't been working. And then the effects are far reaching after that. Where are Americans going to start feeling these effects? One of the big things I think that we need to be watching is food stamps and how Americans who depend on food stamps could see their aid starting to be reduced. Things like federal housing may be impacted. Farmers, the emergency aid that was approved for farmers because of the trade war between China and the U.S., that could be disrupted. And so it is reaching far greater than just the DMV area. You know, it's reaching into all parts of the country. And I think that that is one of the things that's going to really start putting the pressure on the White House is when this reaches into Trump country in the middle of America, where these farmers are, where people who, you know, are needing federal assistance for everyday living are not getting that assistance any longer. Of course, we know airport security lines are being doubled in time because TSA agents are calling out sick. It's bigger than just people in the D.C. area and people living closely to the White House. It's people who are running out of money to put gas in their cars to get to work because they have to work, you know, they're not getting paid. It's all these kinds of things that are hitting everyday Americans across the country. And the sad reality is that so far, no end in sight for this yet. There's some reports of TSA workers even starting to quit because they can't handle the uncertainty. Food safety is one of them. The Food and Drug Administration has suspended routine inspections of uh, food processing facilities. We just got over this big romaine lettuce E. coli thing that just ended. So, you know, who knows if something could be popping up in the meantime, and we don't know because they're not doing some inspections. So uh, it's a huge problem. Nobody wants to play right now, and it just seems like the shutdown is going to keep on going. So we'll see what happens with it all. Haley Britsky, reporter for Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.
members of the rival Tijuana cartel tried to assassinate him at an airport in Guadalajara. And he and his bodyguard were able to dodge the shootout. They ran past the baggage claim onto the landing strips, all carrying 600 grand in suitcases. And they kept running until they got to the freeway where they were able to hail a taxi. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda. We talked about the trial of Joaquin El Chapo Guzman a long time ago, just the logistical problems that come with having such a high profile trial in Brooklyn federal court. The trial has been going on for a couple months now. We're getting a good look inside to the operations of the Sinaloa cartel. There's been dozens of witnesses, cartel bosses, the IT guy that brought him all down and supply the FBI with all sorts of text messages and things like that. But we're getting a story of how he smuggled cocaine, marijuana, other illegal drugs into the U.S. using cars, trains, planes, submarines, underground tunnels, which we know he's super famous for. The trial is still expected to last several more weeks. Let's run down some of the more colorful moments, some of the highlights that have been going on in the trial so far. So in the early 90s, El Chapo had this genius idea of smuggling cocaine across the Tijuana border into L.A. inside of jalapeno cans. And they look like something you'd buy at the grocery store. They were packaged in warehouses in Mexico using labels that imitated those of a real chili pepper company. And to make the cans sound like they were actual peppers, like if they got stopped at the border and someone pulled it out to like shake it and feel it, they packed them with special gravel that would mimic the sound and the weight of water. One of the workers even said that during packaging, the other packagers would get high because they were pressing the cocaine into the cans so (laughs) tight that it would release into the air. I love that stuff. As I said, we know that he was very famous for digging tunnels under the border so they could transport stuff. What do we know about that? He once impressed Colombian suppliers because he was able to move his drugs between the U.S. and Mexico border in days, which is a lot faster than the weeks needed by the other traffickers. It's why he had such a fast rise to power. In the 80s, his cartel was using an underground tunnel that they dug, and they were able to wheel cocaine bricks in carts from the Mexican side to the U.S. about 40 to 50 yards, and they were able to do it immediately, and they were able to get into the tunnel because the entrance was underneath a pool table that would rise up. It was on a hydraulic lift. Yeah, that's cool, and they have pictures of this, so as an affinity for tunnels, that's how he escaped the last time, where... He had people dig a tunnel from his jail cell a mile out, I think it was, and he had a little motorcycle. They, they attached. left a dirt bike down there. Yeah, for a little him. dirt bike attached to a track where he was able to get out. It's just amazing stuff. Jets and suitcases full of cash. This is how he would bring back the money, the profits. Yeah, sometimes the trucks would come back from Mexico and they were just pickups filled with cash. After the money would arrive to the border, it was flown in El Chapo's private jets to Mexico City. Each jet would contain between $8 million to $10 million in cash. And then they'd wheel the Samsonite suitcases filled with at least $10 million in drug proceeds every week to a bank where the tellers were like, are you guys laundering money? And they're like, no, we're just really good at selling tomatoes. <laughs> there was an assassination attempt on him in 1993. Now, this goes in the movie for sure. For sure. In 1993, members of the rival Tijuana cartel tried to assassinate him at an airport in Guadalajara, and he and his bodyguard were able to dodge the shootout. They ran past the baggage claim onto the landing strips, all carrying 600 grand in suitcases. And they kept running until they got to the freeway where they were able to hail a taxi. But during the shootout, it killed this guy, Cardinal Juan Jesus Posadas Ocampo. And that guy was like a really famous dude in Mexico. And so that murder brought El Chapo to the national spotlight. There was an international manhunt for him after that. They did catch him. They put him in jail after that. And he escaped in there. He escaped by bribing one of the prison workers, paying off a prison worker who wheeled him out in a laundry cart. That's how he escaped that time. And a lot of it also, uh, they talked to during the trial 
El Chapo's IT guy. So this is a lot of people are saying he's the guy that really brought him down because he provided authorities with so much information uh, into uh, the operation. He created a phone system so people can make encrypted phone calls. And the best part that he helped him out with, and this is just amazing, is he helped him out with spying on several members of his family, from his wife to his mistresses and uh, and other people involved in the cartel. The IT guy testified that at one point, El Chapo had him surveilling 50 different cell phones. He would give them out in the boxes, still shrink-wrapped, making it look as if they were brand new phones. But he had the capability of, make El Chapo would make a phone call, say, to his girlfriend, uh, talk, and then as soon as they'd hang up, he would have the IT guy activate remotely her phone's microphone so he could listen in to if she repeated any information after the phone call or if she started talking smack about him afterwards. Right. And that was kind of how the guy entertained himself was by sneaking and spying on everybody he knew. Yeah, I mean, he had to, he, he was uh, secretly hiding in the mountains a lot of times while he was on the run from police. But as you said, this is what he would do, sneak around and listen into other people to see if they were double-crossing him. So uh, they got text messages between him and his wife. He would call her darling and my queen and all things like that. Uh, he even said, oh, you know, one of the daughters is uh, grown up so quick. I might buy her an AK so she can <laughs> hang out with me. Just all sorts of crazy stuff. Uh, the trial is still going on for a couple more weeks uh, and we'll see what happens. This All this stuff seems like a slam dunk. They have so much evidence against him for so many years. So we'll continue to follow the El Chapo trial in Brooklyn. Thanks, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. Most of those things were previously free and things that people have no use for anymore, like using the phone in the hotel room or free printing of your boarding pass or using the TV to check out or using services of a notary, things that aren't of much value. Joining us now is Scott McCartney, travel editor for The Wall Street Journal. Let's talk about hotel fees and how crazy out of hand these things are getting. It seems like every time you check into a hotel, there's a new fee added. They vary in price. We all know kind of the resort fee. I never heard of a destination fee. I don't know if it's the same thing or not, but there's all sorts of things in there. Just finding new ways to charge you for extra stuff. So tell us a little bit about that, Scott. What's this new trend in hotels? It's new ways to charge you that don't show up in the advertised daily room rate, and that's the key. What's really happened is, you're right, the destination fees started several years ago, started in Las Vegas and the Caribbean and Hawaii, and hotels had great success doing that, basically able to raise the rate without telling anybody they're raising the rate. And so urban hotels said, we want in on that. And so they started doing it. Now, it's hard to take a downtown business traveler hotel and, and call it a resort. So they changed the name to destination fee or uh, uh, urban destination fee or facility fee. And so they're they, all and, basically the same thing, though. Yeah, they're all basically the same thing. Hotels go through, Jim, some add that kind of a laundry list of things that pay for it. Most of those things. Things were previously free, certainly previously free to people who were at elite levels in the loyalty programs and things that people have no use for anymore, like using the phone in the hotel room or free printing of your boarding pass or using the TV to check out or using services of a notary, things that aren't of much value, including even, you know, a personal shopper at the local department store, ice skating rentals and things, things like that. They charge a mandatory fee. They uh, say, uh, oh, we're giving you all these perks that you get. 
get with it, none of which are particularly of good value, except maybe food and beverage credit. And then you end up with a much higher bill than you thought when you made the reservation. Another one of the fees that has gotten pretty ridiculous recently also is just to use the garage there. I mean, I remember back in the day, you know, you can just self park and your car was there and it's fine. But now you almost can't get into a hotel without having to pay, you know, it's around $30, maybe more, just to have your car parked there overnight. That's exactly right. Uh, the overnight fees have gotten really ridiculous. I've seen $60 in Seattle at hotels, easily $40 at others. And some of those parking fees even extend to suburban hotels where there's plenty of real estate, plenty of places to park. And yet to get into um, the hotel lot, they want to charge you um, fees for parking your car overnight when there's nobody else around. You had a st- statistic in your article, and it just slapped me in the face. Resort and destination fees increased 400% last year over 2017. And that really because 2018 was the year that downtown hotels, urban hotels really started to get in on this game. Uh, So 400% increase there. Overall, fees and surcharges at hotels increased about 8.5% last year over 2017. That includes everything, early checkout fees, minibar fees, you name it. So, you know, an 8.5% increase in this economy is is really pretty good. And hotels these days, they're, you know, quite profitable. Um, The occupancy is high. It's not as if they're hurting for money, but the hotels say they've they've had a tough time pushing up the advertised room rate because it's so competitive with people able to shop and check prices with a few clicks on the internet. Hotel costs are going up. Their labor costs are going up. Real estate costs are going up. But since they don't feel like they've been able to raise room rates, they've made it up with fee increases. As a consumer, is there any way to fight back on these? Yes and no. Um, Some people have had success arguing at the hotel. The key distinction here is whether you receive notice of the mandatory fees ahead of time. Sometimes you really don't receive notice until you get a confirmation from the hotel after you made the booking. Now the hotel may argue, well, you knew then, so you could have changed things. You could have changed your plan. Very few of us actually read the fine print down into the confirmation. (laughs) You get the confirmation and you think you're good to go. Um, You may check the dates. You may check, make sure things are right, but you're not going to read down into the into the fine print. That said, I think when this started at a lot of hotels, for six months or so, they're more willing to waive the fee if you raise a stink about it. But what I've seen personally and, and heard from other travelers is they're really buttoning down and, and saying, sorry, that's the price and and it is mandatory and you got to pay it. This is or the new you normal can just now. walk out and go somewhere else. How about online booking services? Because I know a very few times people will actually go to the website of a hotel unless you're like a rewards member. But a lot of people go through the booking services. Do they have to put these fees up there? How does that work? They are doing a bit of a scramble to create the technology to display that and figure out how to display that and how to add into a total price. I've been through this with the airline industry where federal law actually requires that airline ticket prices be shown including mandatory fees. Now, a lot of airline fees are optional, baggage fees, seat selection fees, things like that. But anything that's mandatory has to be displayed. And so the online booking services had to adjust to that. There's no federal requirement for hotels, but they are trying to create that transparency so people can see what they're actually buying. In searching around, I saw places where a destination fee was displayed in a box right with the daily rate. In other cases, you didn't actually see the destination fee until you click down to pay for the room or, or finalize the booking 
and it's lumped together with taxes and fees, and you got to click on that to actually see what you're paying. It's very much a mixed bag, and I think ultimately the consumers will demand more transparency, but it's not there yet. Scott McCartney, travel editor for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure, good to be with you. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.